So as I mentioned, the title of our series is The Supremacy of Christ. If you have a handout, you look on the front page in the upper right-hand corner, you'll notice also that that is the first of our four core values as a church. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And here the author is making a point regarding this, our core value, the supremacy of Jesus. And in particular today, we've walked through chapter 1, and in particular today, he is warning, he's issue a warning about the consequences of Christ not being, not being supreme. So here's this warning about this message of warning. If you uh, attend here regularly, you would know that we really strive to focus and uphold Christ and His person and also the grace that He extends to us um, by coming to get us when we don't deserve it. We're landing here today for His purposes, whatever He's doing, on this topic of warning. And so if you're here the context might see a little off to you, like, wow, that's heavy. Not going back there. That guy seems intense. Know that that's not the consistent theme that runs here. But also want you to know that we do not apologize for God's Word. It's His, and it's not ours to adjust. So we land here, and we teach here. And he issues a warning. Church, and it's not just, a lot of us are familiar. We've been around church a long time. It's not just that we say with our lips, how Christ is supreme. It's not what he's asking for. He's asking for a life that says, Christ is supreme. And I organize everything in my life around him. And even the fact that there's a warning here, ought to remind us that it assumes that there's choices to be made. Why warn if you're not making any choices? We are making choices. And we're being admonished to consider our choices. See, a warning assumes and declares a deep significance to the consequences of our choices. You with me? This is the first of actually five warnings in the book of Hebrews. So regularly, he's going to keep, and we kind of, this is a little bit of review from last week, but the author is regularly repeating himself, Christ is supreme over, this week it's, he's supreme over the angels and the prophets. He announced that last week, now comes the warning. He's supreme over the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's supreme over the Mosaic law. He's supreme, and he keeps going through. He issues, Christ is supreme, and then a warning for not living in the reality of the supremacy of Christ. As a church, again, we regularly want to exalt the grace of Christ I've mentioned this before. When I was in high school, I remember struggling 
in early college, and my mom would say this to me on a regular occasion, your joy only goes as high as your scars go deep. Church, I just want to tell you, our understanding of grace can only go as high as we understand our sins go deep. Little sin, little grace. To the degree that we understand our sin is the degree to which we understand how significant it is that the God of the universe, in spite of us, came to get us. And so again, if you're new or if you've been around a while, I want my goal, my hope, my desire is to do a good job, not in exalting our sin or making us feel guilty or beating us up over our sin, but we ought to be realistic about it. Because in the reality of the depth of our rebellion against God, we will see His great grace in coming to get us. You with me? So four questions that we really should be asking of this text, the first four verses of Hebrews, to gain some deeper understanding. Let me read it, and then I'm going to just kind of give you these um, questions that we should be asking. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So four questions that we should be asking of this text, if you're coming to it, to get some understanding of what's going on. And the first one is, what is this message that we have heard? The second question is, how is it that we drift The third question, what is this warning? What is he warning us about? And how do we pay much closer attention to it? So what is this message that we have heard? Well, again, every time you see a therefore in Scripture which is how this passage starts. Therefore, you look to see what it's there for. It points back to some information that precedes it, which is what we talked about last week. But also I want you to remember when we were in the Gospel of John as we were heading into the celebration of Christmas, we learned that Jesus' arrival on earth was, was as cataclysmically powerful. It was as cataclysmically transformative as when the universe was created. Remember that? So in Genesis 1, when God's word penetrates and creates our universe, all life on earth physically and cataclysmically erupts. And then in John 1, when God's word penetrates our universe in the form of Jesus, all life on earth spiritually and cataclysmically erupts. Entire Bible is making this point, Old Testament and New Testament, church. Jesus is God who has come in the flesh to save us from His wrath against sin. God has come to us Himself 
to save us from the destruction that takes place when sin smashes together with his holiness. Church, here's the news. This is good news. When sin collides with God's holiness, sin is always destroyed. God won sin zero all the time. Jesus is God himself come to make our payment for our sins to take our justly earned punishment upon himself. Do you hear this? Church, come on. We hear this all the time. Do you hear how good this is? God came to take our sin upon himself so he could live in relationship with us. We could live in relationship with him. So we could be saved from our own self-created devastation. Yes. And this is the supreme message that stands in contrast to the old message. That's what the author is talking about here. This is the amazing supreme message that stands in the contrast to the old message. Now we know that from these short first four verses and also from before in chapter 1 and then even looking forward, that this old message was the law that was proclaimed through angels, the Mosaic law. But we're made to understand that this law isn't bad, but it was actually reliable. In other words, it did its job. So look at verse 2, Hebrews 2, the last part of the verse. It says this message was declared by angels. That equals the Mosaic law. That comes from Deuteronomy 33.2. Moses is on his deathbed. He's recounting for the nation of Israel all that God has done. And he says this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. He's talking about He's accounting for them the testimony when he was up on Mount Sinai, how God brought him the, the law and somehow incorporated in that bringing of the law were myriads and myriads of angels. Acts chapter 7 confirms this. And Luke says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then also Galatians 3.19 also says, why then the law? It was put in place through angels. So this law that was mediated, this message that came from angels, was the Mosaic law. And again, this law delivered by angels was reliable. And the reason it was reliable is because it revealed the people's desperate need, our desperate need, for a righteousness that we cannot conjure up on our own. That was the purpose of the law. It was to point out the fact that there is a righteousness that you need, the standard, and you will never reach it on your own. It's a point of the law. So it was reliable in the job that it did, but it was also faulty in that it could not provide the very righteousness that it required. You with me? 
So Paul even says, I'm sorry, the author of Hebrews later says in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 7, that the law was faulty. Well, how was the law faulty? Well, again, because it asked for a righteousness that it, it could not provide the means, it could not provide the energy for us to meet. But it did its job. That's all it was supposed to do. Now, as I was thinking about this, one, if you think this might be a hard message to preach, preparing for it was a whole nother reality. Because you only have to, you know, might be longer for you. You only have to consider the last 10 minutes. Maybe for you it's the last 10 days to assure ourselves that we cannot, we cannot manufacture our own righteousness. And so we are desperate. We were desperate. And church, even today we are desperate for a better message than the law. You with me? We have to have something better than get over the bar. And so this is the argument that the author of Hebrews is putting forth for his readers and for us. And it's not just here in this section, but the entire book. Jesus is superior to the angels who delivered the law of Moses. That's his point. Jesus is superior to the prophets who delivered the message of both his judgment and the hope of his arrival. He's superior. Why? Because Jesus is the message that the angels proclaimed. Jesus is the prophecy that the prophets prophesied. The, the angels announced the law of God. The angels proclaim the holiness of God. The prophets proclaim the punishment for disobeying the law. The prophets proclaim the arrival of God. Well, Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not an angel. He's better. He's supreme. Jesus is the law of God. He is the standard. And so that's why in chapter 1, verse 3, we read last week, He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of His glory. Jesus is not just proclaiming that God will come soon. Jesus is not just announcing the arrival of God. Jesus is God arrived in flesh. It's good news. And again in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is creator. Now he's reminding us that Jesus arrived as recreator. He will remake man into his image, replacing his hard as rock, dirt heart with the heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36. And breathe into him, into man, his Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And thereby rescuing men and women, rescuing us from the judgment that belongs to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Church, this is the best message you have ever heard in your life. I'm not talking about mine, right? I'm talking about this one. And this best message, look at verse chapter 2, verse 3. It was declared by the Lord. In other words, it was declared by prophecy, the Father's announcement at Jesus' baptism, 
and Jesus' own announcement that the kingdom had arrived. This best news was confirmed by God himself telling thousands of years ahead of time, I'm coming to get you. It was attested to by those who heard. So the author wasn't there, but he's saying, I know these apostles, we know them. They were there, they watched, they were with the Christ. They've attested it to us. So it was declared by God. It was attested by real live people who, at the time of the writing, many of them are still alive. Go ask them, is what the author's saying. Go talk to them. They saw it. They were with. It was affirmed by God with miracles and signs and wonders. Here's my son. I'm well pleased. People saw him. He did amazing miracles, things that nobody else could have ever done in their lives. It was affirmed by God, and it was manifested through the changed lives of the Spirit as God then gave gifts unto men, and then they went and spread this message throughout the rest of the world. This best message was affirmed over and over and over. That's the point. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. I can't possibly pack in all the applications for us as a church. If you walk away from one thing with one thing from today, may it be a prayer that you would utter from a sincere heart, Lord, teach me to pay much closer attention to what I have heard so I do not drift away. And then with every fiber of my being, I will pay much closer attention to what I've heard. I won't just pray and wait. I will pray and work and wait so that I do not drift away. Guarantee, thus saith the Lord, He will not say no to you. And again, there's a good chance this author, as he's been rolling through many Old Testament passages, as we discussed last week, to convince the recipients who were Hebrews, who were Jewish believers, he's rolling through much of the Old Testament to make his point. He may be very well alluding to Proverbs 31. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul. And so like the Proverbs, the author of Hebrews is arguing, do not lose sight of this. Pay much closer attention so that you will not drift away. This is life for your soul. But we ought to ask ourselves the question, How is it that we drift? The temptation for these Hebrew recipients and for us is to turn away from this supreme message and to turn to the old one. When this word drift is used here in Hebrews or other places in the New Testament, it carries with it this meaning of a ring slipping off your finger kind of unnoticed or a boat not being completely tied to a dock and it kind of slowly drifts away or a cup with an unseen hole that slowly and unnoticeably leaks water. It's saying be careful because this is really easy. It doesn't just say careful that you don't just, you know, shipwreck your life or turn 180 degrees. It's be careful about this slow drift. And again, here in Hebrews, the author is talking particularly about his recipients, but the application also extends to us. Let's remember that these were real people 
with real pressures. Following Jesus was hard for these recipients. And they were questioning, is this worth it? They were thinking about maybe turning back to this old system. They were facing pressures from their government. They were being imprisoned and sometimes even physically beaten for their beliefs. They had pressure from their culture, both from their pagan Roman neighbors, but also from being turned out from the synagogue, which was the only culture that they knew. These were their people. This wasn't like us, you pack up and move. This was their people. If they're following Christ, they're now out of the synagogue and they have to rely on this brand new community of believers that's never been tried before. And all this stuff is going on and they're asking themselves the question, is there a better way to do this? Isn't the old way better? At least it's familiar. It's predictable. You know, there's some legalism to it so we can kind of shuffle around these parts that are hard. Don't we like that about legalism? Right? We can kind of shuffle it around and make it say what we want it to say. It's more controllable. It's seemingly more secure. They were thinking this old broken way of the past is better than the unclear faith required way of the future. They were possibly thinking that haggling over past problems provides more a tangible sense of control than creating new realities through faith. And they're tempted to turn, to drift from this marvelous, magnificent message that came to them through Christ. Now, while we're not in the same situation as our ancient Hebrew siblings, we're increasingly experiencing pressure of following Christ from our government and our culture, true? I'm not trying to blow this out of proportion, church, but like never before in our life. And like the Hebrews in a culture like ours, as we cling to Christ and His Word, and I got to say to our shame as a church, and other churches are negotiating truth and backpedaling from truth and disappearing from truth, if we continue to hold to the supremacy of Christ and the truth of His Word, we're going to increasingly experience pressure. And we will find ourselves tempted, just like our Hebrew brothers, to turn to a lesser message. We are tempted to author ourselves as saviors of our own story. Was that not their temptation? Well, wait a minute. This is going really hard. Let me rewrite this in a way. How do we drift? Why do we find this so easy? Let's think back a few weeks in Genesis chapter 2. Because the same temptation then was the same temptation now. Why do we find it so easy to drift? Because the evil one continues to whisper, did God really say, surely you won't die? Man, roll back on the last 10 days of your life. 
and think about the temptations that you have faced. And guaranteed, at the root of every one of those temptations is this question. Did God really say, surely you won't pay for that? That'll go unnoticed. It's just about you. Warning. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. There's one Savior. You're not Him. And if you drift from this one message, this one Savior, there is nothing left for you except for judgment and wrath. You will have to pay the penalty for all your sins by yourself. You have no covering. You write your own story and you're your only savior in your story. That story has one ending. It's bad. It's not good. The drift of self-saving, even if the means is religious, only serves to increase our punishment. Hear that? Even if it's religious behavior, our means of self-saving only increases our punishment. If all the law could do was to point to us how we're measuring up, doesn't matter how good you're doing following the law, the law keeps saying, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. You need a savior, you need a rescuer, you need hope beyond yourself. That's all the message can do. The old one. There is no righteousness to be had outside of Jesus Christ. There is no life to be had outside of the, of the life of Jesus Christ. There is no reducing God's wrath against the sin that you have contained in you apart from Christ. You cannot unearn God's wrath. You cannot reduce God's judgment on sin by your good works. You can't do it. And even if you could do it, you have a misunderstanding about how high your pile of sin is because even if you could reduce it, the amount that's left deserves extreme judgment and punishment. Look, none of us here who ever loved one of our kids would let them continue to disobey and disobey and disobey, true? We would never let our kids go over and stick a thing in a light socket over and over and over again. Never. What would you do? You'd give them a little spanking. Turn them away, turn them away, turn them away. Whatever your parental disciplinary processes are, you would do something. You would rescue your kids. The only thing, the only thing that our self-saving produces is more judgment. That's why verse 2 says this, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's the old version of the message. And it wasn't that good. And yet, every transgression and every disobedience 
received punishment. How much more this new message, this greater one. Transgression. It's interesting that the author uses two words. Transgression and disobedience. This idea of transgressing is like every sin of omission. In other words, I didn't even know that was a sin. Or if I didn't even think about that. You know, we might say, oh, I made a mistake. Or, oops. Every transgression that isn't in line with God's holiness receives a just punishment. And then disobedience, it's a sin of commission. I knew it and I did it anyway. A blatant sin. Whether you mean it or not, anything less than holiness receives a just punishment. And so verse 3 asks rhetorically, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Because the answer there is, you won't. And so Romans 6 says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. It's a great passage. So when you were slaves to sin, you didn't have to be righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Or later in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, For if we go on deliberately sinning, in other words, living as if Jesus is not supreme, but we're the author. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is nothing else. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three more witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outrages the Spirit of grace? The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you are paying for your own sin debt, the author in Hebrews is encouraging us to consider warning that will not go well. So we need a message of ultimate salvation. It must be a law greater than Rob, obey better. It's got to be a law better than make God happy. What's the best message you ever heard? God himself has come to us as the person Jesus Christ to save us from the destruction that takes place when our sin crashes into his holiness. And he loves us so much. All this sin and judgment and wrath that I've been talking about, he says, I'll take it from you. You know, we have a culture that wants to say, 
What a mean God. Yeah, you would say that until you were in a courtroom and you had somebody in your family who was horribly mutilated by some murderer and then you would want the judge to bring justice. True? We want justice. God is a God of justice and He says, I will punish all that kind of sin completely and fully. And if you want me to, If you ask, I will cover all your sins that are just like that, but they're just different. I will cover all of that by myself for you because you need a better message than do it yourself. Jesus is God Himself who has come to us to make payment for our sins, to take our justly earned punishment upon Himself so we could be saved from our own self-created devastation and live life with him forever and now praise the lord yeah this hey team really good news yeah we rest in this news right we organize our life around it and then we don't just say thanks god i'll go live my life my own way paul says that's not love that's not gratitude we say no thank you We love you. I want to be just like you. And I'm going to die trying. So help us, God. So how do we pay much closer attention to this message, church? One, we got to be really clear about what the message is. Yeah? We have to always keep it before ourselves. We must believe it, read it, absorb it. Be around others who love it and are willing to speak it to us. We have to be really clear about this message and and never lose sight of this message. Core value number one for Vine and Branch, Christ is supreme, non-negotiable. How do we pay much closer attention to this? One, we got to be clear about what the message is. Two, we must not negotiate the truth, not according to culture and not according to our own minds in order to make the lives of ourselves or others more comfortable. I said this to somebody, man, this week, I would love to bend this for you. It's not my truth to bend. It's not mine. I've told you this before. God help me, and you guys hold us, hold me and all of us accountable. We are to bend ourselves to the truth, joyfully. We bend. Bending God's truth so that other people feel more comfortable is not grace. That's pride. You can bend your own will, so if somebody sins against you, then you don't have to hold them accountable. You can extend grace to them. That's yours to bend. But bending God's truth to make somebody else feel good is not your truth to bend. It's not my truth to bend. So if we're going to pay much closer attention to this message, we've got to be really clear about what it is, and we can't negotiate it. And what that ought to cause us to do then 
is to be far more attentive to our own sins and our own propensity to drift than we are about the others' others' sins and their drifting. We see sins on the surface and always, always, you have far more offended God than that person in front of you has offended you. Always. True? Can we be real? Your pile is much bigger than the pile that you can see. Yeah? So if we're going to pay much closer to this attention, much, much closer attention to this message, we've got to be far more attentive to our own sins than we are to the sins of others. If this truly is the greatest message we have ever heard, then we recognize the great sin debt that we have been forgiven, and this should cause us to cling all the more closely to this message. Peter says, where else would I go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. That's us. Jesus, where else would I go? This is the best message I've ever heard. I'm going to cling to you and to this message with my whole life. And lastly, let's end on a positive. How do we pay much closer attention to this message? Let us regularly, daily, rejoice, rejoice, take hope in, speak to ourselves, say it out loud, write it down, memorize this greatest message that we've ever heard. Yeah? If we're going to cling closely to it, the way we're going to hold on to it is if we love it. Love, church, love this truth. This is the best message I have going. Then we'll pay attention to it. So Paul tells the church in Rome, here's how you rejoice in it. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus the Lord is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, this is this, is, this, is this message to the Hebrews, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, so therefore this is the message to us. What will separate you from the love of, Christ, from the love of God that is in this greatest message we have ever heard that's in Christ Jesus. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you want not to drift, team? Love this message. It will keep you from drifting. Father in heaven, what a great gift that you have come on your dime, in your righteousness, to pay for wayward, fit-pitching children. 
As we grow up, may we love you more and more. As we mature, may we be less selfish and less about us and more about you and the family to which you've called us. Just like we expect of our earthly children, may we be all that and more to our Heavenly Father, who has been far greater than any of us fathers here in this building. And so to you, we lift up our praise and our gratitude and our thanksgiving, and we say thank you for giving us this greatest message ever. Thank you for paying the huge insurmountable debt we could never pay. Thank you, Brother Jesus, King Jesus, for coming to get us when the older brother was standing in a corner pitching fits about his father going to get his younger brother. You yourself came to get us, and we are thankful for this redemptive story that we get to be a part of, by which you have called us and named us sons and daughters. Lord, may we pay much closer attention to this message, lest we drift. For your glory and our joy and the growth and the purity of your people, your church, we ask you to hear our prayers and run these truths deep into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.